You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, let me read. Um, pay attention to uh, the way that this... this uh, The narrative unfolds here in Mark 15. We're doing, like I said, a very short series. I'm not calling it a mini-series. That sounds strange, but a short series on who is Jesus. And last week we talked about his message. What was the central message of Jesus? And this week we're looking at his death. And so I want to look at, and next week obviously his resurrection. I want to look at Mark 15. Start in verse 1. I'm going to read to verse 39. Now, as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away. At this point, he was already arrested. They bound him, led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked, again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now, at the, at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had been committed, who committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them, and, uh, for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said, again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus... He delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they they called together the whole battalion, and they cloaked in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming up from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot even save himself. Let the Christ the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. 
those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling to Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for hanging on that cross. And I don't know if every single soul here, every single person here has had that same encounter with you where they are, they're standing at the foot of the cross and they realize that it should have been them up there, but it was you up there. I don't know, but I pray that today you'd give us more clarity into that. I pray that tonight that you would show us the great love that you have toward us. The things that we deserve, you took our place. As your word says, that you were made sin who knew no sin, that we can become the righteousness of God. God, I pray that you would make that truth so beautiful. I pray that everything would pale in comparison to that. Everything, God, every want that we have, every desire, every emotion would submit to the fact that we are loved by God deeply. And it's so humbling, God. I pray, God, that you would lead us through this text and show us why. Why the centrality of the cross? Why is the cross so important? Why do we sing about it every week? Show us, God. I pray that you'd use me, speak to hearts, change us, Lord. Give us faith to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to I share to this, this evening three things about the cross. Three things that we see here about the cross. When I say the cross, I mean that Christ would give himself up on the cross, as we saw in our text. So three things about the cross. First, the scandal of the cross. Second, the substitute of the cross. And lastly, the salvation of the cross. The scandal of the cross, the substitute of the cross, and finally, the salvation of the cross. First, the scandal. The cross of Christ is the execution of a prophet, rabbi, leader, lover, Jesus. The cross is the execution of a great leader, of a great prophet, of a great teacher, of one who brought peace, of the one who, when a deaf man walked up to him and, and, his, and he's never heard sound before, Jesus would put his hands on his ears and, and, and heal him, completely heal him. And the, the sound of Jesus' voice would pierce through his eardrums and it would, he would understand. His voice would be when he would just read mouths before, all of a sudden speech became intelligible. A man who was blind, Jesus would touch his eyes and heal. Jesus, who's this great healer, who's this great prophet who taught like a great teacher, like the things that like the Sermon on the Mount and to turn the other cheek, all these wonderful things that we love about Jesus, the cross is the execution of this man. And if you go into any grand cathedrals or churches in the world, you look around. I don't know if you've traveled much or spent time looking at old historic cathedrals or churches. It's beautiful. We have even several here in the city. And you observe their spatial liturgy, the way that 
the stained glass, what the stained glass reads, and the way that the building is set up, the front of the church, you'll notice that the cross of Christ dominates everything. Even clergy, even pastors, even priests wear crosses around their necks, around their lapels, or on their lapels. Some carry crosses as they enter the building. Some cross themselves. Some have crosses on their pulpit. And if you were to participate in any of these churches, if you've been to any church or growing up in any church, you will notice that the symbol of the cross is throughout the entire service. Or maybe this is your first time exposed to church. And though we meet in a rented hall, there's, there's not crosses everywhere. There's not a cross in this pulpit, and there's not crosses adorning this building, and we, we're, we're in a rented hall. But if you came into this church as your first time experiencing church, you notice that the cross comes up all the time in our liturgy. We sing about the cross every single Sunday. We sing songs like, oh, the wonderful cross, and lead me to the cross, and thank you for the cross. There's a a uh, group of friends who had, a f- who had a friend, and he's never, ever, ever been to church before. And after knowing them for, his guy for quite a while, they invited him to church, and he came one evening, one Sunday evening, and observed and sat through a couple Sundays, and afterwards they took him out to dinner, and they, they went out with him and said, what do you think about church? He's like, okay, so I understand the whole pastor part. I understand the pastor getting up and opening up the Bible and like talking about the sermon. I get that part, but the weirdest part of service was the singing part. Like every, the lights go down and then people stand up and then everyone, and you don't know who's on the stage and it's obscure and then like the, the guy's not, you know, he's just singing. Everybody's singing about the death of this guy, the death of Jesus, the cross, like it sounds, it's just weird. And when I heard that, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I just forgot. I forgot how weird it is. It is actually pretty weird. The, the whole church stands up and we sing these songs. If you look at the, the, the liturgy that we sing, the doctrine that we sing, it is about the cross. It is about the death of Jesus. It's about his blood conquering, his blood covering. I mean, just think about that. We're singing, oh, cover me with the blood. You're like, what? That's crazy. What do you think? Why do you sing that? Why do we say things like this? I pray the blood of Jesus over things. And thank you for the blood. And I drink your blood. It's just very, very strange. But the cross of Christ is central. The death of Jesus is central. We actually preach on it every, almost every single week. The sermons from this pulpit are ways how at the end of it, no matter where we're at, if we're in some obscure place in the Old Testament or the book of Genesis or even in the New Testament, at the end of every sermon, we talk about how whatever we're, wherever we're at or whatever we're talking about finds its fulfillment in Jesus and what he has accomplished for us on the cross displaying the love of God. So why such a concentration on the cross. If you studied world religions, you will know that every religion or ideology has its visual symbol, which illustrates a significant feature of its history and its beliefs. You have the Star of David for Judaism, though the Star of David is very modern. They still have it. The lotus flower for Buddhism, the crescent moon for Islam, the hammer and the sickle, yin and yang, the swastika, all of these different symbols displaying a religion or an ideology, their visual symbol illustrating what's significant to their history, what's significant in their beliefs. Christianity is no exception to having a visual symbol. Though Christianity has many symbols to draw from, Christianity can draw from a fish. That could be our symbol. A loaf. It could be a manger. It could be a dove. 
though Christianity has many symbols to draw from and does utilize them from time to time, the dominant, the dominant symbol in Christianity is the cross. And what's so surprising about this, as John Stott writes in his wonderful book, The Cross of Christ, is when we remember how the ancient world regarded the crucifixion with such horror, with such scandal. He writes, How can any sane person worship as God a dead man who had been condemned as a criminal and subjected to the most humiliating form of execution? This combination of death, crime, and shame put him beyond the pale of respect, let alone of worship. You see, the early church could have drawn from any number of symbols that were a lot lot less offensive. Now, today the cross isn't as offensive. If you're wearing a cross, you're like, oh, what? Oh, cool. That's neat. That's a really neat Christian thing. Are 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 you religious at all? Well, no, it's just a thing. Even if it's just a thing, nobody's tripping on you. No one's like, ooh, I wouldn't wear it. It's not offensive to anybody. But it was offensive in the first century. It was offensive because it meant execution. It was offensive because it meant shame. It was offensive because it meant this is the way that common criminals died. And Christianity could have used any number of symbols that were not as, as offensive, like a dove. What's so offensive about a dove? Everybody loves doves. I mean, nobody loves pigeons, but everybody loves doves. <laughs> doves are not offensive. You're like, I have a dove. Like, oh, I love doves. A loaf of bread, Jesus multiplying the loaf of the loaves. Like, that's not offensive. Bread is not offensive. Could have been fish. I mean, cute fish, you know? Good fish. Like, those, that's not offensive either. But a cross was offensive. See, the fact that the cross became the Christian symbol and that Christians have held to the cross in spite of being ridiculed and refused to discard it in favor of something less offensive can have only one explanation. The centrality of the cross must have originated in the mind of Jesus himself. The centrality of the cross must have been been what Jesus himself centered his whole life around. And it was out of loyalty to him that his followers have clung to it ever since. The Apostle Paul has even said, or has said in 1 Corinthians, that the cross is foolishness, even madness to some. But he goes on to say, in this context it was, he said to, to the Jew, the, the, the cross is a stumbling block. Who would think that, that the Messiah would die on a cross? No way, a stumbling block, no way. But to the Greeks, it was foolishness. Are you kidding me? A cross? But Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, but for the followers of Jesus, the cross is the power of God unto salvation. So why is the cross so central to Christianity, being such a scandal, being so offensive? Why is the cross still central to Christianity? The only answer is the cross must have been central in the mind of Jesus. But was the cross central in the mind of Jesus? Last week we said that the central message of Jesus was the inbreaking kingdom of God. We said that Jesus' whole ministry can be defined as God breaking in. God's kingdom was breaking in, setting all wrongs right, bringing in the shalom of God. We quoted from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry and all the gospels, and it said something like this. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. You want to see what that looks like? Watch. And you watch Jesus. And we said that Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. 
whether these took form of sicknesses and demon possession among people or of hypocrisy, cruelty, and hard-heartedness among rulers. We said the whole ministry of Jesus is interpreted as the breaking in of the reign of God into the life of the world. The kingdom of God breaking in is what every single healing was about, every teaching, every exorcism, every wave that obeyed Jesus, every demon that submitted to Jesus was about God's kingdom breaking in. And I think all of us love that. I think I can go anywhere. I can go to any church or spiritual gathering and talk about Jesus as coming in and bringing healing, bringing shalom, destroying the works of the enemy, destroying the works of the evil one, coming and setting things right. Everybody would agree with that. Everyone's saying, yes, that's what it looks like to your religion, like the kingdom of God breaking in and bringing peace, bringing shalom, bringing wholeness. I like that. But I think sometimes when we read that, we have a hard time thinking or, 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 or meditating on the fact that where does the cross fit in? It seems so off-putting. Okay, yes, I get the kingdom of God breaking in. I get all the wrongs being set right. I get the shalom part. I get, I get blind seeing and lame walking and, and people who were demonized um, free. I get all that. But what about the cross? Doesn't all that kingdom of God stuff sound so triumphant, so successful, so powerful and encouraging? And the cross seems like the exact opposite of that. The cross seems like defeat. The cross is defeat. The cross is the execution of a common criminal. Dying on a cross is arguably the cruelest method of execution ever practiced. The ancient Roman philosopher and famous orator Cicero said this about crucifixion. He said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him is an abomination, to kill him is almost an act of murder, to crucify him, what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. He went on to say that the, word, the very word cross should be far removed from, from not only the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. The cross of Christ is so, or the cross in general, is so offensive and was so offensive that Cicero said that it should be removed from the eyes. We shouldn't see crucifixion. We shouldn't hear about it. it should, the very word should be stricken from our vocabulary. We should, not, we should not use the word crucifixion. We should not use the word cross. Actually, the cross was so bad that Roman citizens themselves were exempt from crucifixion. Not only was crucifixion bad in the mind of Romans, but it was also horrific in the Jewish mind as well. For in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, it says that anyone who hangs on a tree for their crime is under the curse of God. So if you were to hang on a tree, you were under God's curse. The cross, of, the cross was a curse both to the Jew and to the Greek. To the Gentile and the Jew, it was, the cross was bad. But the kingdom of God seems so good. The kingdom of God seems like victory. The cross seems like defeat. How does the cross have anything to do with the kingdom of God? How does the cross have anything to do with the message of Jesus, his peace, his teaching of love, of power to heal, of action of divine power? How does the cross have anything to do with anything that Jesus did? Actually, the cross of Christ has everything to do with it. The cross of Christ means everything. Because you can't understand Jesus apart from the cross. If you are here this evening and 
you really love to absorb the great teachings of Jesus, his great miracles, his love for enemies, his enemies, his teachings about forgiveness, his teachings about wholeness. If you love that, but you do not get and you do not accept the cross, you, you have not understood Jesus. Actually, Jesus himself won't even let us do it. Several times throughout the ministry of Jesus, I can only think of one exception. When Jesus heals someone or someone figures out who he is, he commands them not to tell anyone. You ever notice that when you're reading the Bible or the New Testament? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus heals someone. Someone's um, eyes are, are made open or their ears or they're, or they're lame and then they can walk. And then Jesus says to them, okay, great, you, you can walk now. Okay, don't tell anybody. You're like, whoa, wait, wait. Like, doesn't that, like, defeat your purpose? Shouldn't I tell everybody? And Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And then um, there's a time on Caesarea Philippi, or on the way to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is asking his disciples who they say that he is. And he says, they say, Elijah, and some say, this and that. And like, who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one. You're the deliverer. You're the one. And then Jesus says, okay, don't tell anybody. You're like, whoa, wait. If, if that's who you are, if you're Jesus Christ, shouldn't I tell everybody? Jesus And this is actually called the secret messianic motif. I love it. I love that title. No one truly sees Jesus for who he is yet. And this is why he tells everybody, he stops everyone from spreading the news of who he is. Because the ones that do get him, tells them to be quiet. The ones that don't get it, they reject him. And some follow only to leave later. No one really sees Jesus until the cross. It's not until the cross that you really see who Jesus is. Because at the cross, everything comes into focus. Every teaching comes into focus. Every message, the kingdom of God, everything comes into focus at the cross. Who Jesus is is bound up in what he came to do. And as Jesus hung on that rugged cross, praying for the forgiveness of his torturers, being completely innocent himself, and finally breathing his last, there's this Roman centurion. Do you notice him? Did you notice him when we read Mark 15? This Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross facing Jesus. And it says, and when this Roman centurion sees and the way that Jesus breathed his last, he said this, truly, this man was the son of God. And finally, in Mark's book, he's not told to be quiet. Mark leaves it there as if to say, finally, you see him. Do you want to know who he is really? Look at Jesus on the cross. Don't forget his message. Don't forget his teachings. Don't forget his his mode of discipleship. But you don't really get him until you see him on the cross. Now, what do we see? What's so important? What do we see on the cross that Jesus, that the whole New Testament wants us to grasp? What do we see? Well, we could talk about this for a million years, but I want to point out two things this evening. The first is we see substitution. We see, the, we see Jesus taking our place. And we actually see it um, realized in two figures in our text that we just read in, in, Matt, in Mark chapter 15. The first guy is this greasy, I imagine him as being a greasy guy. Barabbas, do you notice that guy? Like this greasy criminal guy. Have you ever seen Passion of the Christ? How he comes out just, this, just, this is gross man. And Jesus, his face swollen from being beaten by the Sanhedrin the night before is brought out before the crowd, before a mob. And what Pilate does, see, Pilate, Pilate thought Jesus was innocent. 
Pilate completely believed that Jesus was innocent. So he didn't want to sentence Jesus. He didn't, he didn't want to crucify Jesus. He didn't want to sentence Jesus. But he knew, but he also didn't want to let Jesus go because he feared the Jews. And so what he tried to do was this, okay, 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 we'll beat him. And then that should satisfy the crowd. So he beat him and it didn't satisfy the crowd. And every year during festival, every year during Passover, what he would do is he would release one prisoner, like, like a scapegoat almost. We're going to release one pr- prisoner from prison every year. He's like, okay, what I'll do is this. I'll, I'll make the, the, the crowd choose Jesus. And so I'll bring up the most notorious criminal that I'm sure they won't reject, Barabbas, a murderer, a criminal. And he stands him right next to Jesus in this, like, this, this, this criminal standing next to the beautiful Christ. Think about that for a moment. I mean, you, you, you should. You could have a very good mental picture if you've seen that movie, The Passion of the Christ. But if not, just imagine Jesus standing there, innocent. Isaiah says, like a sheep before the shearers is silent, Jesus opened not his mouth. He didn't yell and defend himself. He didn't say, I'm innocent. I've done nothing wrong. I don't deserve to stand here. He just is quiet. And Barabbas, this notorious criminal, is standing next to him. And Pilate goes, who do you want me to release? And everybody yells, Barabbas. And Pilate's like, wait, what? what, Then what in the world do you want me to do with Jesus? And they yell, crucify him. I read an interview with the actor who acted in The Passion of the Christ, the, the Barabbas character. And, and again, I read this on a blog, so it's probably not true, but it, it was a really good story. Um, in, in it, it said that the, this, this actor who's an Italian actor named Pedro something, um, his last name is really hard to pronounce. Um, so uh, he said that he was not a Christian, and he studied really well, I mean, obviously the the, the, the passion week and the passion of Christ. And he studied, he studied the, the scriptures, but he didn't really get it until he was standing there. And the director said, I don't want you to look at Jim Caviezel, Jesus, in the eyes. I don't want you to look at him until the very end when Pilate says you're free. Then I want you to look at Jesus in the eyes. And the blog said, I don't, again, I don't know if it's true, that this is when he converted to Christianity. Is that he was acting, 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 and then when they said he's free, he looked at Jesus and he, he said, I, when I looked at Jim Caviezel, I like saw, I just, it just kind of came into me with, with perfect clarity that I am guilty, but I was set free because he went, he took the cross. He went to the cross, and I was set free. Like it came, it came to me in, 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 a, in a realism that no one else really ever gets to experience. I lived it. I was like in Barabbas' shoes. And he, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm a murderer. And I look him in the eyes, and and, he, and they, they locked eyes, and I got it. He goes, I understood. Guilty Barabbas is a picture of you and me going free, and the innocent Jesus is delivered to be crucified. You and I go free, and Jesus goes to the cross. That's substitution. What does the cross of Christ speak? It, it speaks this. You and I belong there. Because of our sin, because we murder with our mouths, with our anger, We're greasy criminals standing next to Christ. And Christ goes to the cross for us. But then you meet this other guy, Simon of Cyrene. And after all Jesus endured from his arrest the night before in the garden to his beatings, his being whipped with the cat of nine tails and his back completely destroyed and shred apart, 
You can imagine how tired he is and the load of a heavy crossbeam he probably could not carry. And so part of a prisoner's humiliation is to carry his own cross to the place where he would be executed. But Jesus was unable to go on, and Mark records, and so does Luke, that he couldn't carry his own cross, so they made this, this passerby, this guy named Siren, uh, Simon of Cyrene, who he said is his mother, and he already named his mother and dad, his mother and father, because um, church history records that Simon went on to be a follower of Jesus and a leader in the early church. Now, have you ever wondered when you read that, why didn't Jesus carry his own cross? Perhaps there's something bigger going on than Jesus just couldn't carry it. See, carrying the cross was a sign of guilt. Carrying the cross meant you're guilty. Take it to the place of your execution. But Jesus was not guilty. Simon was the one guilty of sin. Simon was born into sin. Though he was a very devout follower of of Yahweh, he was in Jerusalem during Passover. He still needed to be there to have his sins passed over. See, the carry the cross was a sign of guilt. Jesus was not guilty, but Simon was. And though Simon carried the cross as a guilty man, Jesus was nailed to it, and Simon went free. In this story is the substitution of Jesus in our place. We're guilty, we're murderers, and Jesus takes our place over and over and over again. 2 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle writes, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin." Who knew no sin. Notice it didn't say Jesus was made a sinner. He was made sin. Our sins were upon him. He was made and treated as if he was sin. Though he knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Abraham in Isaac's episode pointed to, we talked about two weeks, when Abraham's going up the mountain and Isaac says, Dad, you have the, the, the fire and the knife and I have the wood, but we're going up to worship. Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb. And then on that mountain, right when Abraham is about to strike his own son, there's a ram caught in a thicket. That ram dies instead of Isaac's substitution. And that's what the sacrificial laws pointed to. That's what the scapegoat pointed to. That's what pointed to over and over again in Israel's history. And finally, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is taken instead of us. This is in every great story. This idea of substitution is in every great story. You'll find it somewhere. One of my favorite ones is that that movie, Gran Torino, with Clint Eastwood, because it's it's so unpredictable. In that movie, Clint Eastwood is a very angry man. And he's a very racist man. And he goes around air shooting people. But at the end, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin it for you, but deal with it. (laughs) But at the end, he dies. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So did someone plug their ears? Because you haven't seen that movie. First of all, I don't even know what you're doing having not seen that movie. But that's a whole different subject. At the end, he dies so his, so his friends can go free. Substitution is in every movie. It's, it's in every great, it's the, actually one of the greatest storylines ever told. It gets us like nothing else. There's something about substitution. As soon as we see it, we're like, oh, 
This is Katniss substituting herself for Prim. It's everywhere. It's every single great storyline. And if you watch stories all over again, you'll see it everywhere. Substitution. There's something that gets your heart right away. Oh, substitution. Somebody giving their self for someone else's life. It's, it's, it's the greatest story. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. See, there are some who would step in and die for someone else, substitution. And there are many who have done so. But Jesus stepped in while we were his enemies. Jesus was dying for the, same, for the very people who were killing him. What does this mean? Lastly, this is salvation. What was Jesus doing on that cross? Through substitution, he was saving us. Jesus Christ was saving us. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then he adds a very, very great line of who am I? I am foremost. What was happening on that cross? The salvation of sinners. See, when, Je- when Jesus was delivered up, did you notice what's given more detail than anything else? Like, have you ever realized, or you've probably heard pastors expound on the excruciating pain of the crucifixion. But you notice that the gospel writers never talk about that? The writers never explain the torture of the crucifixion. How due to the unnatural position of the cross, all the weight of the victim is placed on their diaphragm. So they, would, they could inhale, but they could not exhale. So the victim would survive days upon the cross and ultimately die of suffocation. And the only way to inhale or exhale, the only way to breathe, was to lift themselves up by placing the weight on the nail on their feet and lifting up with their arms and shoulders. And after doing this for several hours and days, their shoulders would dislocate and their arms would literally stretch out to the point where they had no more muscle. And then what happened, all they can do was lift up on their feet, on the nail on their feet. And eventually their legs would cramp up and due to lack of oxygen, their blood would become sluggish and their legs would just give out and then they would die. To hurry the process, the Roman soldiers would often break the legs of victims so they could not breathe. Why don't the gospel writers say anything about that? Do you notice what they do focus on though? They focus on the mockery. Did you notice that? They don't focus on, this is what crucifixion looked like. They focused on the mockery. They focused on how the battalion was called together, and Jesus was taken to the back, and then he was dressed in purple. And they kneeled down and praised him. And they said, hail, king of the Jews. And then they punched him. And they grabbed a reed, and they beat him over the head, and they spit on him. And they twisted this crown of thorns, and they embedded it into his skull. And they put a rod in his hand and they bowed down in mockery. Hail, king of the Jews. Why do the gospel writers record that? The reason why they recorded that is that there's great irony there. The reason the mocking is there is because the gospel writers are mocking their mockery. The gospel writers are saying, actually, fools, no, he wouldn't say fools, but I would say that. Actually, he is the king. 
The one you are crucifying as pretender king is the true king of Israel. No, the true king of the world. You're mocking him as a fake king, as a pretender king, as, quote, the king of the Jews. In mockery, they put that above his cross, the king of the Jews. They even said, take that down. He's, he's not the king. And they're like, we're going to leave it up. It's mockery. But the gospel writers are mocking their mockery. He actually is the king of the Jews. And what the cross is is the, the enthronement of Jesus. The cross is his victory. It's not defeat. It's victory. But not but not the victory of Rome, not the victory of the Jews, the victory of God over the powers of the world, over our sin, over the devil, over death. The second group of mockers are the passerbys who yell at Jesus on the cross. Verse 31, so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Now, okay, if we were watching a movie, this, that's exactly what would happen, right? Oh, yeah, if this was, the, this was really Jesus the Messiah, let him come down the cross. And then all of a sudden, Jesus would go boom, boom, and like pop his hands off the cross and then jump down and be like, what? And everybody would go, oh, my gosh, Jesus, Messiah, you're awesome, or something like that. That's what would happen. If we were writing this movie, Peter would learn how to use his sword finally. And he would grab his sword, and he would, like, not chop off ears, but, like, heads. And he would chop off some dude's head and then, and then pull Jesus off the cross. And the disciples would, would take Jesus off, and Jesus would stumble off, but then Jesus would get his legs back. And then he would give Jesus a sword, and then they would triumph over Rome. And we're like, that is a great ending to a movie. And then everybody would go, see, Messiah. He is Messiah. They were mocking him. If you're the king, then come out on the cross. Prove it to us. But that's not what happened. They kept mocking, they kept beating, they kept spitting upon him, they kept killing him. And then someone said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. But here's the deal, he wasn't on that cross to save himself. He was on that cross to save us. Mark ten forty five. for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, what dominated the mind of Jesus throughout his life was not the living of his life, but the giving of his life. I'm not here to live this full life. I'm here to give my life. He wasn't there for himself. He was there for us. See, we may choose the moment of our death. We could die for someone. We can even die for a cause. And at that moment, we can choose the moment of our death. All of us can. People have said, well, what's so special about Jesus? There's a lot of people who died for other people. Oh, they choose the moment of their death. But Jesus is the only one who chose the fact of his death. Jesus didn't have to die. The wages of sin is death. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He would have just transfigured or something or lived forever. He didn't have to die. Jesus is the only one that chose the fact of his death. Why did he do that? To save us. Jesus reveals himself as king, not by coming down from the cross to save himself, but staying on the cross to save us. Jesus is the true king who liberates us, who brings salvation. Jesus died to save sinners. Now that might be a truth that's thrown out there, but what I want to do this evening and how I want to end this is this. That's a truth that's given out there. I just said that. That's out there. You have to do something with that. 
The gospel doesn't mean that you have to now do your part because Christ has done his part. That's not what I'm saying. We believe. And the best way I can explain this is through some of the basic elements of life. Jesus used them on the Last Supper. He takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat. It's for you. What do you do? Receive it. Personally. Take it in. This is my blood of the new covenant. Given for you. Poured out for you. Take, drink. What we do is this. Christ has done this. He, it's, it's out there. It's right here. It's okay. Here it is, the truth. He died for you as your substitute. You belong there. You're Barabbas. You're Simon of Cyrene. You, that's us. He went there instead of us. He went there. Died our death for our salvation. He didn't come off the cross to save himself. He stayed on the cross to save us. It's there. Truth. What do we do? His life given for us. Take, eat. Take, receive. That's what communion is about. That's what communion is about tonight, if you've not done that, ever. If you're like, okay, it's out there, that truth is out there, okay, I see it, but tonight, make it, make it real, like, okay, I, for me, he saved me. I'm gonna take the body and the blood of Christ and appropriate it to my life. I personally need Jesus. We do, and I do. So let's respond to God. Let's thank him for taking our place. Let the wonder of what Christ has done penetrate our heart. Let, let, it, let it change us. Let it mold us. Let, us make, let it make us into who God wants us to be. Let it transform the way that we love. Let it transform the way that we forgive. The way that we see our city, our job. Let us transform everything. Let's just sit and wait upon God as we remember the cross of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you that you given your life. You shed your blood for thee. You didn't have to, but you did willingly. Pilate didn't kill you. Rome didn't kill you. The Jews didn't kill you. Our sins, but more than that, you gave your life up for us. And we thank you, God. I pray, God, that you would, tonight, that you would save. That we would, it's out there, that truth of what you've done. I pray that we would take and eat, that we would receive it. pray that you would meet us at the table of communion tonight, that we would hear over our lives that we're precious in your sight. We don't feel precious at times, God. We don't feel worthy or not. But I thank you, Lord, for showing us how much you love us, that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were wretched sinners, you died. Thank you for loving us that way. In Jesus' name, amen.